So glad that all of you uh, chose to make time on your Sunday to be here to join us here at KI for a really important conversation. Uh, our fantastic social action and social justice team put this event together because uh, unfortunately it's not going to be a topic that's irrelevant anytime soon. Um, but it was already scheduled uh, before the tragic events of yesterday, and so I'm so glad that we have this opportunity uh, to come together, and we'll have some time at the end of our discussion to hold the victims' families and those who are wounded in our care, as well as to recite Kaddish for those who perished. We are so uh, glad to have experts with us to walk us through what's a very complicated set of issues around this topic. Um, you know, the heat goes up pretty quickly when you start talking about gun violence. And so it's really important that, you know, that we learn as much as we can and be able to have really grounded conversations. So we're so grateful for our experts. Uh, Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA School of Law, is a specialist in American constitutional law and the Supreme Court. He's the author of Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America, and We the Corporations, How American business, Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. His popular writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the New Republic, Atlantic Slate, Scottish Blog, and Daily Beast. He's a frequent commentator about legal issues and has appeared on Face the Nation, CNN, NBC Nightly News, C-SPAN, NewsHour, ABC News, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, and Marketplace. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Kelly Drain is the research manager at Giffords Law Center. She provides public health data expertise to support the organization's policymaking, litigation, and educational work. Kelly helps to research best practices for community-based gun violence prevention as part of the Urban Gun Violence Initiative, and she maintains an ongoing database of studies and reports related to firearm violence prevention. Gifford's Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, the nation's leading policy organization dedicated to researching, writing, enacting, and defending proven laws and programs, is on a mission to save lives from gun violence by shifting culture, changing policies, and challenging injustice. Thank you so much, Kelly, for agreeing to be part of our panel this afternoon. <clears throat> Moderating our panel this afternoon is someone who, to most of us, needs no introduction. I will introduce him anyway. <laughs> Our beloved Rabbi Emeritus, Stephen Carr Rubin. Um, he is a nationally recognized expert in the field of moral education and is the recipient of numerous community awards, including the MICA Award for founding the largest full-service homeless shelter in Los Angeles. He's also a recipient of the Unsung Hero Award from the Youth Law Center in San Francisco. Are you still unsung if you win the unsung I just got hero? sung. I just got sung. I just got sung. He's always being sung. <laughs> Stephen has contributed to a wide variety of publications as an author and composer. He's written numerous books, including Raising Children in a Contemporary World, Raising Ethical Children and Children of Character, Leading Your Children to Ethical Choices in Everyday Life. Uh, he's past president of the Board of Rabbis of Southern California. Stephen has served on the boards of many nonprofit organizations, including Chrysalis, Global Children's Organization, I Have a Dream Foundation, the Center for the Improvement of Child Caring, and he is currently, I know, very involved with Home Shalom, which deals with the issue of domestic violence. Thank you, Rabbi Stephen Carubin, for being part of our panel this afternoon. <laughs> 
so on behalf of our uh, very active uh, Tikkun Olam committee, um, thank you so much for choosing to attend. So Angela Milstein, Gina Deutsch, Zacharin, I know we've got Carol White in the house, um, and all of their many, many dedicated volunteers. They are what makes this happen. On their behalf, I welcome you to our panel. <clears throat> we should quit while we're ahead. You know, um, I've been thinking all day about how fortuitous this gathering is. That all over the country there are gatherings today. Jewish communities all over the country. There's uh, something happening like in an hour, I think, in, in Westwood. Um, vigils, uh, prayer services, interfaith prayer services, um, sparked by the, the tragedy of, of yesterday, um, and how this is the place to be in our sanctuary, that we call it sanctuary for many reasons. It's to be our safe, spiritual, emotional place to be, to gather, to to reconnect with the things that matter most in life, with the values that we cherish, the foundations that you know, reflected in the Torah scrolls behind us that have been our touchstones for literally thousands of years. And, and this, is, um, this is our vigil. This is our, our place to come, not to argue today about one policy or another policy, um, to learn from people who are steeped in this world and in this conversation, to, um, to share our pain uh, with each other, perhaps, uh, and, and to remind ourselves again, particularly at moments like this, that there is always more that unites us than there is that divides us across race, across religion, and across politics, in spite of the headlines that blare at us day after day after day after day that seem to want to tear us apart, seem to want to draw an aisle down the middle and have us pick a side somehow, that in fact we're human beings with common dreams and common hopes and common destiny and we're all on this one little planet together, and that our task, our challenge, our goal in life for all of us, regardless of who we are, is to find that commonality and to cherish those values and ideals that draw us together and to raise them up and to celebrate them and to find ways of, of acknowledging them through our public policies, through our communal institutions, through the nonprofits that we all are involved with one way or another, including synagogue life, which is increasingly more and more a nonprofit um, in life as all churches and synagogues tend to be these days, um, and to remind ourselves that that's who we are, and that's who most people are. I mean, look, it took one person yesterday with those weapons. One disturbed human being believing in his mind that Jews were helping murderers to invade our country and kill us. That's what he said. 
And I believe he believed it and acted that way and felt in his own mind that he was some kind of hero, you know, preaching the, against the enemy. Uh, one person, and the trauma is worldwide with one person. So on the one hand, it's a reminder of the power of one for good and for evil, both. And on the other hand, it's to remind us of the power of one. It's not just to do evil, but to always do good as well. And that each of us can be that person. It's the Jewish response that from thousands of years ago, our, our Torah teaches us, Lo ta'amod al that we aren't to stand idly by the blood of our neighbors, and that our tradition teaches there's uh, there's no such thing as being um, an idle person watching something else happen. If it's happening, then it's our responsibility to be involved, and it always has been, and that we're part of this chain, and what these two are involved in and what we're all involved in today in this conversation with our heartbreak from yesterday is to remind ourselves that there in fact are things that we can do that matter that's my goal of the day to remind ourselves that who we are matters and that there are things choices we can make in our own lives and things we can support that will help move us to the side of choosing life always which is our challenge so um, we'd, we'd like to begin by, um, again, thank you, Adam. And by the way, uh, one of Adam's greatest qualifications for being here today is that he has season tickets to the Dodgers, and he's here anyway. <laughs> Just saying. <clears throat> Just saying. So, in any But I'm leaving after my opening remarks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have a helicopter waiting for him outside, actually. <laughs> So um, please, uh, why don't you share some of your, your thoughts with us? Well, okay, let's talk about the Dodger game first. Now, um, yeah. But um, thank you, and, and it's a pleasure to be here tonight to talk about this. Uh, uh, it was very profound thinking today about coming here and speaking uh, at the synagogue, uh, being that all I was reading about all day was about a horrific shooting uh, at a synagogue. And so to be talking about gun violence, uh, to be talking about this issue right now, is just, it's profound and meaningful to me. Uh, and, and so I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, and I think that it's important really just to start with that very point, uh, that it is time to talk about these issues. That some people think that in the wake of a shooting, oh, that's not the time to talk about it, that we should be uh, just honor the victims by being silent and quiet and we'll deal with the politics later. Um, and I think that's wrong and I think that this is the time when we are focused on it and our tradition uh, as a people uh, uh, who respect democracy, um, as a Jewish people um, uh, who want, uh, respect the liberation and thoughtfulness, uh, we know that it's in these moments where uh, where we can find enough energy to focus our, our attention uh, and get something done. 
And that's not to say that I think we're on the precipice of getting good reform uh, getting uh, uh, right now, because I don't think that's going to happen uh, quickly uh, through the current Congress. Um, but it is time to talk about gun violence. This is the moment to be thinking about it and to talk about it uh, and to address it when we have the passion, when we have the energy, when we have the focus. And I think one of the other things that really struck me in reading the news today and the stories was some of the other ways which we don't talk about gun violence the right way because I can't think of a better example than this shooting uh, of some of the ways in which we talk about it the wrong way. So I remember all the shootings, they, uh, the, all the news articles, they say, uh, well, there were uh, 11 killed and, uh, se uh, and seven wounded, including uh, the shooter. And, and if you read that article, you feel like the, the number, there's a number 18 somehow, you know, uh, and this is something that has affected a whole community uh, that is nationwide, that is international, in fact, lots of, uh, um, lots of statements from uh, Israeli officials and others and leaders there. Uh, this has profoundly affected a lot of people. Uh, and when we think about gun violence, we often, I think, tend to underestimate or underemphasize the extent of gun violence and how many people are affected by it. So typically when we talk about gun violence, we think about, for instance, how many people are killed every year from gun violence. And it's about 30,000, and uh, about 60% of those people are suicides. Um, uh, so if we talk about it 30,000, I mean, that's a big number, but it's also a wrong number, right? Is it just 30,000? Yes, maybe 30,000 who die, um, but it's 100,000 who are wounded. And a gunshot wound is not like a little broken arm that you just heal from, no problem. Uh, it's, for most people, uh, a lifetime injury, something that scars them forever. And we know that even in a shooting that doesn't affect a whole community the way the Pittsburgh shooting has galvanized our attention and our passion, um, we know that a shooting affects so many people in someone's family, that there's someone who has to care for the victim. There's someone who has to, you know, the ones not who die, but the ones who live. Think of the families who have to take care of that person. Uh, and uh, we really should be thinking about these numbers in much greater terms than just 30,000. You know, maybe we should be talking only always about 100,000 and re get reference to the, the number of people who are shot every year and who are victims of gun violence in a very direct way, even if they don't die. Um, and, and even that, I suggest, is underemphasizing how big it is. And this particular shooting, more than any, highlights how it affects a community <coughs> and how this makes us all feel unsafe in so many different ways. Um, so that was one of the things that really came out at it. I do think that when we think about um, how this has galvanized so many people to be thinking about this issue again, we saw this after Parkland too earlier this year where there was a real political mobilization that happened led by students in that case, uh, young people who were pushing to get this issue on the public agenda um, and to keep it there and to keep the focus. Uh, and, and I think that that kind of momentum is very important for those who want to see gun legislation reform. Um, because right now I think many people in the gun reform community are very frustrated, understandably. Uh, they feel that they're not going to be able to get anything done from Congress. And that's probably a realistic assessment given the current Congress, given the current president who's not interested in signing gun control legislation, I don't think. Um, uh, and so that's probably right, so there's that frustration. But um, gun politics do change, and they've been changing, and they're a very dynamic area of American politics, and that if you go back through American history, you look and you find that um, so much of what we take for granted today 
wasn't the case 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, and it's a result of politics changing. You know, the courts used to say that the Second Amendment didn't protect an individual right to bear arms. Now they do. That's a result of a, a political change, a developmental change that's been led and pushed by organizations that are like the NRA and believers and ideological people uh, who, who ha or not, they're not ideological, but they share that ideology of gun rights. And they've been pushing for that. And they've changed how the courts think about that issue. Uh, that the NRA itself has, uh, has transformed and developed so much. Uh, over the years from an organization that used to support gun control laws that wrote many of the laws uh, restricting people's ability to carry guns on the streets today uh, and endorsed them, endorsed those laws back in the 1920s and 30s and now the NRA is in court arguing that those laws are unconstitutional and that you shouldn't be able to have to have a permit at all to have uh, to carry a concealed weapon. So. Gun politics does change, and it's not an area where uh, there's not uh, there's going to be future change too. The question is, what direction does that change take? And I think that the kind of political mobilization that's happened after Parkland, that uh, may happen after this Pittsburgh shooting again, um, is really the central thing for changing gun politics uh, in uh, in any time in the near future. Um, and we've seen a lot of signs of hope for gun reform advocates in the political space. Um, there's uh, from Giffords, which has become really active in the political space with the super PAC and really spending some money on politics. Every town has been really active spending money on politics. You know, for like 30 years in American politics, uh, all the money in the gun debate went for the pro-gun candidates. And there was very little money on election day and in electoral advocacy work going for gun control candidates. That's changed now because of Giffords, because of every town, because of new f sources of financing. We've even seen some elections like the Washington referendum on background checks where the NRA was outspent in a tightly fought uh, election that they might have uh, been able to win. Uh, and so uh, I think that politics is changing. Uh, and I think the kind of po political mobilization you're seeing is where to both devote your energies and where to gain hope if you're uh, someone who really wants to see gun reform uh, in America. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks for the. We're going to do a couple of opening statements and then see any kind of reactions we want to have and then open it to questions and have a conversation uh, about the subject. And so, um, Kelly, I, first of all, I want you to know Kelly lives in San Francisco and flew down here for this for this weekend, so <clears throat> who knew KI was such a draw, right? Um, so please uh, share, I know you, you're yeah. steeped in this. Yeah, so I think Adam did a really great job laying out the sort of problem of gun violence in this country, and we see that it affects enormous numbers of people, and so for that reason alone, we know that the public health community, um, which I would consider myself part of, needs to be involved in coming up with the solutions. So we've seen that public health is a really effective approach to tackling other um, challenges in our, in our country. Um, so I, would, I just think a really good example is to talk about how the CDC and public health community help to reduce gun injuries. And I think that that gives a lot of um, evidence for how we can, or I apologize, how, we, how the CDC and public health community reduced car crashes. And I think how that can translate to tangible reductions and um, we can use those same strategies to reduce gun violence. So the CDC has declared that their work um, reducing motor vehicle injuries was one of the greatest public health accomplishments of the 20th century, and this seems to be a pretty reasonable distinction. 
Fatalities per vehicle mile driven have fallen about 85% since the 1950s. Um, and most people wouldn't say that we're better drivers today than we were in the 1950s. Um, <laughs> we've done some work to reduce drunk driving, but we certainly have very high rates of distracted driving. Um, so it behooves us to look at this success and see how we can emulate it. Um, so the way, the two, I would say that there are sort of two ways that we reduced car crashes in this country. One thing that we did was we created a system where it's really hard for people to make mistakes or behave inappropriately. Um, so I always think about this, like we put these bumps on the side of the road so that if you're driving and you fall asleep or you get distracted and you start swerving, you'll hit the little bumps on the side of the road, your car will shake and hopefully you'll start focusing on your driving again and we can avoid a collision. But the other thing that we had to do to reduce motor vehicle deaths is ensure that even when people still make mistakes, no one gets seriously hurt. So we've designed cars that have airbags and that their frames crumple instead of falling apart. Um, so these are cars and other, we've made other design changes that when cars do crash, far less injury is produced. Um, so we've seen these huge public health successes. Car, car crashes are just one example, and we've saved thousands of lives, but we really haven't seen the same kind of sweeping success, certainly not at the same magnitude in preventing gun injuries. Um, in fact, in the last 10 to 15 years, the gun death rate has remained basically stable. Um, we saw a couple of increases in 2015 and 2016, and there have been some blips, but, but outside of that, you know, I would say that the rate has remained relatively stable. And so part of the reason that we haven't seen the same success in reducing gun deaths is that we sort of skipped a crucial step in the public health approach to prevention. We need really good surveillance and research. Um, when we wanted to prevent car crash deaths, many people thought that we should focus on individual driver behavior, but our federal agencies started doing research on car crashes and they found that there were these really common risk factors that were present in many car crashes that we saw across the country. And so it created a space that we could could enact policy to address these common risk factors. Um, unfortunately, as many people know, there's been significantly less research conducted on gun violence compared to other leading causes of death. So a lot of this dearth of research can be attributed to a 1996 amendment to a federal spending bill that stated that CDC funds, um, so Centers for Disease Control and Prevention funds, couldn't be used to advocate for or promote gun control. The amendment was interpreted by senior CDC officials to mean that the agency should stop all gun violence research. Um, and in fact, the year after the amendment passed, Congress reallocated about $2.6 million previously earmarked for gun violence research to the study of traumatic brain injuries. And so in large part because of this legislation, in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been very little funding to study gun violence and very little coordination, certainly at the federal level, um, to encourage researchers to better understand this issue. And I think it's important to contextualize just how little research has been done. So about as many people each year die from an infection called sepsis as they do by gun violence. Um, and you know, we also know that gun violence has these other sort of community-wide effects, but, but in terms of raw deaths, they, they cause about the same burden of injury. Um, gun violence gets less than 1% of the funding that sepsis research does. So two causes of death and vastly less money is spent to understand um, what's causing these deaths. So I think it's important to understand how a public health approach works and recognize that research is such a crucial component of that. But despite this lack of research, we're using public health to address some of the most injurious aspects of the gun violence epidemic. Um, so I'll just briefly give an example of gun suicides. Um, 
As Adam said, about 60% of gun deaths in America are gun suicides. Americans are eight times more likely to die by gun suicide compared to people in other high-income countries. And globally, about a third of gun suicides occur in the United States. We have the highest rate of gun suicide in the world. And historically, the way that we talked about gun suicide and thought about gun suicide in this country was to think of it as a mental health problem that we needed our psychologists and psychiatrists to really address. And so we asked questions about a person's mental health, like their history of depression and other mental illnesses, their drug and alcohol use, um, a family history of suicide and mental illness. And I think these are really important questions, and they definitely give us um, a lot of information about some of the risk factors for suicide, but they don't give us a ton of opportunity for policy solutions outside of increasing access to mental health services. So public health researchers started looking not just at why suicides were being uh, attempted, but sort of the what and how. So looking at, instead of suicidal intent, really focusing on suicide method. And when we look at the method of suicide, we see a really clear link between access to firearms and suicide risk. In fact, to date, every US study that has examined the relationship between firearms and suicide has found that access to firearms is one of the strongest, um, if not the strongest, risk factor for suicide death. We typically say that having a gun in the home, regardless of other risk factors, approximately triples the risk of suicide death. And we know that this relationship is even clearer when we look at the demographic groups that are most affected by gun suicide. So suicide rates are disproportionately high for demographic groups with the easiest and broadest access to guns. Um, older white men have elevated rates of suicide. This is a group that has higher than average firearm ownership rates. Gun suicides are more frequent in rural areas where again, people tend to be more likely to live in a home with firearms. And we know that about a fifth of our, veteran of our firearm suicides occur among veterans, um, a group which has significantly elevated firearm ownership rates. And I would say to break it down very simply, there are two factors that seem to account for this strong this relationship between firearm access and suicide risk. And one is sort of the, the broad lethality of guns. So firearms are the most lethal of the commonly available means of suicide in the US. Most people who attempt suicide will survive unless they use a gun. Um, just for context, about 5% of non-firearm suicide attempts result in death. About 85% of suicide attempts with a gun result in death. Um, the other factor that explains the relationship between gun access and suicide is the fact that gun suicide is typically an impulsive act, even if there's been previous suicide ideation. So most suicides, um, most people decide to attempt suicide within seven, or most people attempt suicide within um, ten minutes, or within an hour of deciding to do so. Um, even more people, or even a large amount of those people, decide to attempt within ten minutes. Um, guns can be an irreversible solution to what's often a passing crisis. So people don't have time to reconsider their actions or summon help. Once the trigger is pulled, there's not the opportunity to turn back. So we see this really clear link between gun access and suicide death, and I think it creates a real opportunity to create policy that's rooted in public health research um, that attempts to prevent suicide by attending to the method of suicide, and we can really protect, have a, a population-wide effect instead of an individual effect. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, one particular policy, which is um, known as extreme risk protection order laws. So California has a version that's known as the gun violence restraining order law, and we also have called them ERPO laws. Um, 
These laws allow families, household members, or law enforcement officials to petition a court for an order to temporarily restrict a person's access to firearms if they're deemed, deemed a danger to themselves or others. So ERPO laws can be used to separate the most, least, the most lethal means of suicide from an individual in a time of crisis. These laws got a lot of attention after the Parkland shooting because there was this sense that the shooter had displayed all of these warning signs of dangerous behavior, but there was no mechanism to take away his guns or restrict his access to guns. He hadn't yet committed a crime and we couldn't prohibit him under any other criteria. So we saw eight states pass these extreme risk laws in 2018. Previously, only three states had these laws. So this was largely spawned by some of the Parkland activism um, that occurred after the shooting. Um, and so we have some indication that these kinds of laws can permit mass shootings um, because we know that many mass shooters display dangerous behaviors before they commit a shooting. But we have even more solid evidence that these are laws that will be incredibly effective in preventing suicide because they allow family members to separate guns from people at high risk of suicide attempts. So one example is Connecticut has a limited version of this law, and they found, researchers found that by removing guns from 762 at-risk individuals, um, the state was able to avert over 100 fatalities from suicide. Um, so I think this is just one example of how we're separating at-risk individuals from the most lethal means of suicide and preventing deaths, but we've also seen really promising results from studies of waiting periods and gun licensing laws. So we know that there are ways that we can use policy to separate people from the most lethal means of suicide and, and save lives. Um, I think there are other ways that we're using a public health approach to prevent gun deaths. Urban gun violence is a really great example of that. So scholars have looked at violence in cities and really seen that it spreads much like the way that um, a communicable disease spreads. Um, in fact, in a study of Boston neighborhoods, about 85% of gunshot victims were affiliated with one another. So we could tie them together in sort of a social network tree. Um, and that a person's risk of being a victim of gun violence was significantly related to how close they were to another victim of gun violence. So we've developed these programs that work in our cities to sort of target um, people who are perpetrating gun violence in much the same way that we would target a pathogen that's creating infection in our communities. And we're seeing really re impressive results. Um, some of these programs have reduced gun violence by 60 or 70% in our cities within just a few months. Um, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> So I understand that California has the strongest gun laws in, in the nation. That's what I read. Actually, I read from the Giffords Law Center that California has the strongest gun laws in the station and the, in the nation, and that there are several new laws that are going into effect, including raising the age to buy a rifle or a shotgun from 18 to 21, uh, banning anyone convicted of certain domestic violence, uh, right up my alley, from owning a, a gun for life, uh, if applying for a concealed gun permit, you have to have eight hours of safety training. Um, I think these are all starting now. These are new laws. And in, um, as you were exactly what you were talking about, the police can ask for gun violence restraining orders verbally. Now they don't have to go through a, a whole written process. They can, they can do it on the spot. And that stolen or lost guns must be entered into the state database uh, within a week of any agency knowing that it's missing so that everybody knows, you know, they're sort of more on the same page in terms of all the different uh, various law enforcement agencies that we have as well. So, 
you know, I mean, we're fortunate that we live in, those of us who live in California, live in California, which tends to be a sort of a more progressive state in, in many of these issues, including the issues of, of gun violence. You know, um, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the Talmud, because I'm a rabbi, so I was thinking about the Talmud, and one of the more famous uh, statements in the Talmud is in Perkei Avot, in the chapter Avot in the Talmud, it says, Lo alecha hamalacha ligmor, that we're not uh, obligated to finish the work of any of these things that we're doing. It's not on us to feel like we have to finish it, but Lo ata ben chorin as well, but we're also not free from the obligation to do something, to be involved. And to sort of have that sense that, you know, to have realistic expectations, to believe that, that by standing up, by speaking out, by signing petitions, by voting for one candidate over another who espouses a position that we happen, any of us happen to, to agree with, whatever that happens to be, that we can make a difference in what is clearly a public health issue. Um, and one of the things that I admire the, <clears throat> the Gifford Law Center for is, 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 uh, couching the struggles that we have about gun violence and the issues with gun violence as a public health challenge to recognizing that just as we have attacked other public health challenges successfully, you know, we've done this. Um, Adam, I wondered if you had uh, anything you wanted to respond to or add to... Well, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, the, 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 her, uh, uh, your assessment's absolutely right, and I think that um, a public health approach is the right way to do it. And, uh, and Rabbi, you're right, too, that it means you also have to be realistic about what you can accomplish uh, and what the nature of the problem really is. You know, sometimes we think the problem is different from what it is. Um, the problem right. of gun violence is primarily a suicide problem. That's not how we think about it in the, our, our daily conversation and in our public debates. You think that it was mass shootings. That's what gets all our attention, but the mass shootings are just a tiny fraction of gun violence uh, and gun deaths every year. Very, very small fraction, um, but they get the high profile. Um, uh, that uh, a public health approach that looks at that, that takes uh, uh, seriously the the challenges of um, of reform in this area recognizes that there's probably 400 million guns in circulation in America today, more than one per person. So whatever reform you adopt today confronts 400 million guns that are already out there, right? You're not you're not starting on a clean slate. You're starting in a world that's got guns everywhere, and now you want to reform it. That makes it a little bit more difficult. It's more of a challenge. And unlike, unfortunately, for, uh, uh, for those who want to see reform in this area, it's a lot different than changing traffic safety laws. Right? Traffic safety laws, you had an industry, the car industry, that was a powerful industry that fought against reform. It's more like smoking. Right. Well, it's because there was a powerful lobby again. No, there was a powerful fighting against lobby. some of those too, in, in that sense. But actually, that's the distinction I want to make. There Good. was a powerful lobby in favor, uh, against traffic safety reform, the car industry. There was a powerful lobby against tobacco reform, right. tobacco, and there's a powerful lobby in favor. Uh, I mean, against gun reform in the NRA. The big difference between those three things is that there wasn't uh, a majority in 40 states who were vehemently opposed to new traffic safety reforms. 
And we have a country in which about 40 states, it's not only impossible to get gun reform adopted, the laws go in the other way. And they're reforming the law to make it more permissive to get guns. That it's not just that you have an NRA that's involved that's stopping reform, is that you have voters all across America for whom gun control is uh, an issue that they really, they're very vehemently opposed to any new gun control laws. This is something that really motivates their vote. And that's a real significant difference. Mm. And, it, and I, think you, I think a public health approach has to recognize the reality too that yeah. it's not just that there's a powerful lobby here. Yeah, you need a powerful lobby in America. It's American politics, you need money. Yeah, there's a powerful lobby here. But the NRA reaches and persuades a lot of voters. And the reason why we have our gun laws that we have today is not just because of a powerful industry. Um, it's really because uh, uh, of democracy. Uh, that American people keep voting in this direction. This is what they want to see. So part of the response has to be, um, if you want to change those hearts and minds, mm -hmm. is to really focus mm -hmm. on, uh, on, a, on these bigger picture issues. And it's a long-term process. And, and so... Again, it's important to have that yeah. principle that it's not our obligation to finish. But if you want to get something done, you have to start and have to and, and, and face it's rec recognized that the odds are pretty daunting and that it's going to be difficult to get lasting, significant reform, certainly easily. Um, so the thing, it seems to me, um, there are there are clearly issues that um, the majority of people in America gun owners and non-gun owners. It's not a gun owner versus non-gun owner issue. There are, there are clearly certain issues, at least from what I've seen and what I've read, that, that most people in America agree upon, uh, including gun owners, things like uh, that guns shouldn't be in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. You know, some of the people, the kind of people, the kind of person who was shooting yesterday, for example, people with mental health issues, people with histories of mental health, that even gun owners agree that, that good people should have guns and not bad people, so to speak, to, to be as um, sort of simplistic as possible. And that ar around those issues, there ought to be uh, the ability of, our, of all of us to, uh, to make some headway because they're in agreement about those. It's a matter of what you do next, how you identify who are those people, and, um, and how you do that in a way that doesn't threaten to, for gun owners their sense of their right to be gun owners if they want to be gun owners. Um, and also, I think it's, it's helpful to remember when we talk about 400 million guns in America, which I know is true, that it's not that 400 million people have guns. It's that most gun owners have more than one gun. That people that are gun owners have lots of guns. So it's a, actually a small percentage, a smaller, much smaller percentage of people in America who actually are the gun owners, but they have more than one gun. Um, and that finding a way, that's part of the, the art, I suppose, of, of effective communal politics would be finding a way to not threaten those people who, you know, cherish the, their right and their ability to have whatever kind of guns they want to have and still be able to pass laws that help us to keep guns out of the hands of people where they don't belong. Uh, yeah. Vicki, sure. Do we have microphones that can go? Because otherwise no one will hear... 
prioritizing those with mental illnesses by providing affordable, extra affordable services and opportunities for them to get help? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the CD... Oh, sorry. Um, she asked if public health agencies and public health professionals are doing anything to destigmatize mental illness. Is that, did I fairly... Yeah, to provide opportunities yeah, for to them provide. to get help. Yeah, so I think, yeah, absolutely there are individuals that are working, um, you know, at the CDC, at other public health agencies to increase, to destigmatize mental illness and to increase access to services. I think something that's interesting, so I talked about the law in Connecticut that re removed guns from people. Scholars actually found that by having this law that intervened in people, with people in moments of crisis, about 44% more people got access to mental health treatment than would have without the law. So I think, you know, what, what I focus more on, um, and that's just the nature of my job, is sort of looking at ways that we can have gun safety laws and mental health services together, but I, I absolutely think that there are public health professionals that are working um, you know, on access to mental health services and thinking about ways to, to expand that, those broaden that service um, across our country. Do you know anything that's happening in California that, that along those lines that are, I mean, is there a synergy between those who are trying to take guns away from or not make guns accessible to people who have mental health issues and people working in mental health? Yeah, I think we are doing a lot of work um, implementing, you know, our gun violence restraining order law, and I think that we have been working um, pretty hard to work, to um, coordinate with mental health agencies um, and talk about ways that, you know, we want this law to not stigmatize people. There are some people that are calling these laws, um, using terminology and phrases in these laws, like saying red flags, um, so to speak, and that's really dangerous. The mental health community really resents using the word red flag as sort of a descriptor of a mental health crisis. Um, so we are working, you know, to make sure that we're implementing laws that are respect of it, respectful to um, people with mental illnesses. And um, yeah, and I think, but also educating the mental health community about the, the true risk factor of, of guns and mental health and, and what a deadly nexus that can be. Terrific. Yep. Hi, thank you so much. Um, as someone who works in public health, I, I find this debate really, really uh, fascinating. My question is, where, does, where do we get stuck in terms of gun control? If we have identified that a good place to start is mental illness, which either is someone who is suicidal or someone who is homicidal, uh, that that person actually should be in a hospital because um, they're a danger to themselves or they're a danger to others. But where, where do, I mean, we get stuck somehow even with that issue. Why is that? Well, I think there's probably a number of reasons we get stuck there. I mean, one is just a, just a maybe you call it a technological issue, which is it, how do you identify the people and take away their guns? Like, that's the big issue in the mental health area, right? I mean, how do you identify the people who you want to take the guns away from? The law currently does it, right? The law currently bans people who've been adjudicated mentally ill he says, if you've been adjudicated mentally ill or mentally incompetent, then you can uh, have your firearms taken away from you. Um, I think there's a new law in California that says if you're hospitalized twice within one year for mental health issues, you're banned for, for life from having owning a gun. That's one of our 
New laws. Right, right, right. It's a new law. Um, and, and so it's, you, the laws tends to, so you could say, well, we want, that's going to really undercount, right? That's not going to capture all the people who we want to capture, right? Like this guy at this Pittsburgh shooting, uh, right? Didn't really, wouldn't have uh, never had a mental health adjudication. And most of the mass shooters have not had a mental health adjudication. Um, so you say, well, that's not that we want to have something broader. Well, what's the standard that you go for that's broader? That is, and so California's got this new reform, and they're going to try this as a, a sort of an experimental approach to try to figure out if that if that's going to work. Um, but that's really one of the real challenges in that space. And um, uh, there's actually a lot of pushback too from mental health professionals about thinking about gun violence as a mental health issue, like you mentioned, homicidal. Uh, a lot, you know, a lot of mental health professionals say, look, a lot of this gun violence is not from mental illness; it's from anger and it's from lack of self-control, and it's not the same thing. As mental illness, so I think it's there is it's a it, it's an area we need to do more and to reform, and it's an area we need that kind of experimentation. But it's definitely a real challenging one because it's hard to identify those people who you want to take the guns from who are going to do something bad. It's just tough. Yeah. I was, there's three major organizations uh, uh, regarding, I guess, trying to control. Guns. I, there's three major organizations: uh, the Clifford, uh, Newtown, and Brady. How do they work together? What is their budget, and how effective are they? Um, I cannot answer questions about their budget. Um, I don't. I just don't know. I mean, I think we coordinate as much as you know we're able to. I I think there are times that we choose priority laws in states and we all sort of um, throw our money and support in trying to pass that law. Um, you know, we have conversations about, like I think we all try and sort of prioritize the same policies that researchers are identifying as really effective. Um, so, you know, I think there are, there, but they're separate organizations and some of them have different priorities within the state um, and nationally. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, like one policy that's very important to all of us is a universal background check policy. So our federal team um, is working with, um, you know, I work at Giffords, so our Giffords federal team is working with um, people at every town and people at Brady um, to, because we know that we need everybody, all hands on deck to sort of get this law passed um, or even get a vote on this law. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that answers your question um, to the extent possible. I don't do a ton of work with these agents, th these other um, organizations, but, but I know that there are people that are very, um, within our organization, that, that are very involved with, with the other groups. Yeah, and I think to emphasize there's a lot of cohesiveness, too, uh, yeah. in terms of the policy agenda, like you say. Um, and um, um, I think one of the areas in which um, there's a lot of uh, maybe more coordination is in the litigation space, right, where there's in defending against Second Amendment lawsuits. There is uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, overlap and coordination. Uh, uh, we're here. Uh, Adam Skaggs is here, who's uh, uh, been sort of one of the most important people in litigating and defending gun laws uh, in the country over the last uh, five or six years. In the wake of uh, the Supreme Court's uh, Heller case, uh, working at every town and, and now at Giffords, uh, and, and really uh, uh, overseeing a lot of that litigation and a lot of that coordination. Um, and it's an area, too, by the way, again, maybe one of the ways in which we talk about gun violence the wrong way. If I asked you, are the gun control 
groups, uh, the gun violence prevention groups, are they, uh, are they successful or not? And you might say, well, you know, we're not getting any laws passed by Congress, so no, I, I guess maybe not. But if you look at the state level, there have actually been a ton of reforms since Newtown. Newtown was in 2012. You know, you've had so many states who've adopted significant reforms for universal background checks and other things. California is just one example. It's about 45% of the population that live in states that have made their laws, that have tried to uh, close those loopholes in American laws since Newtown. Uh, and a lot of that is because of those organizations are really active and on the ground working to change state law uh, where federal law can't work. And if you look in the courts, an area where, um, uh, uh, where the Second Amendment has been reinvigorated over the last 10 years, um, but the victories for the NRA in court have been few and far between because of very good litigation uh, from uh, the likes of Adam and, uh, and his compatriots at the other organizations working together to try to defeat those lawsuits. So, so uh, sometimes the success is hard to see. It might not be as public. It might not a law passed by Congress. Um, but, but there's success happening in other ways when uh, you understand the diversity of problems and, and, and fronts that you're battling on. I saw a TED talk recently by the president of the Brady uh, organization and who mentioned in the course of, of his talk that um, because of the background checks over the last 20 years, he said something like 2.6 million guns were not given to and removed from people who couldn't pass background checks that, you know, that we sort of don't notice if we're not in, in that world that because, you know, as I said, one person with an AR-15, suddenly, you know, the whole world is impacted. It's like the pebble in the pond and the ripples go. But the day-to-day -day work and, the, you know, in all of these states, almost none of us are really conscious of that there's, you know, a little advance here and an advance here and an advance here. And it's part of that's it's, it's the challenge of public policy. Public policy is never very sexy and never very public is the problem with public policy. It's not very public. It's very individual and very private. Um, and only those who, you know, are really involved in that world are, are conscious of it. But there are things happening every day that are slowly moving us forward. You know, and, uh, yeah, Robert. Yeah, uh, a question for you, Adam. Um, the Second Amendment has become a rallying cry for those who oppose gun control legislation. Can you just sort of tell us what are the, as of today, what are the bright lines in constitutional law that, that define what legislation is permitted and what's not? And the second part of the question is, assuming there will be a frenzy to get new legislation to our new Supreme Court, what issues do you anticipate coming up before this new conservative Supreme Court short, uh, in the near term? Sure. Well, that's a great question because that's an area where, where the future really is up for grabs, I think, a little bit. Um, so uh, what the Supreme Court said in 2008 in a case called District of Columbia against Heller, uh, that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms, uh, but only really said that it gives you a right to have a handgun in your home for personal protection and didn't address all the other issues that are involved in, guns, uh, in gun regulation. And since then, the Supreme Court has stepped back in and added little teeny bits to this, but has not really addressed 
address the biggest issues in, uh, in the gun control questions on constitutionality. Mm-hmm. I should say that the lower courts, applying the Supreme Court precedents, have upheld the vast majority of gun control laws, or gun violence prevention laws, if you will. Um, uh, everything for the, the major items on the agenda uh, from uh, uh, lower courts have upheld background checks. There haven't been too many cases, but they've upheld background checks and universal background checks. You can uh, have um, uh, courts have upheld consistently restrictions on military-style rifles, so-called assault rifles. Courts have upheld restrictions on high-capacity magazines. Um, I think courts are very uh, are, are going to uphold these gun violence restraining orders uh, as well. Um, and so the vast majority of gun control laws have survived. And so today, um, it's been a story of um, the NRA maybe being a little disappointed with how the Second Amendment has turned out in the courts. Um, uh, courts have also upheld, for instance, restrictive permit, permitting for concealed carry. Uh, laws like the laws we have in, Cal- in Los Angeles that basically mean no one carries a gun concealed lawfully in Los Angeles. Um, what I do think is that um, uh, uh, is that th- those are uh, you know those are in terms of the future. That's the real question. We've had two Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. Um, I think both of them are very, very strong uh, Second Amendment advocates and believers who will strike down things like bans on assault weapons and restrictions on concealed carry like we have in Los Angeles. And I think the big things to look for is a Supreme Court case in the coming years on whether a permitting policy like we have in California to restrict guns on the streets is allowed or not. Um, maybe eventually a, the court will take up a ban on military-style assault rifles. Um, and it'll be, I, I don't know how the court's going to go on that. I, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts is still uh, up in the air, I think, in terms of exactly what his view is on this. Um, but it's definitely we're going to see some, lib- some cases going to the Supreme Court now to try to test that. Thank you. I really appreciate um, all of you and what you're saying, both of you, as far as public health and, Adam, as far as what you just brought up. I'm a firearm specialist. Um, This morning I was at uh, Martin Redding gun store before I came here. I'm working on a fatal shooting case right now. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a forensic specialist. And all over one wall... (coughs) And everyone in the store was gleaming them were assault weapons. One guy was walking around the place with her, feeling very powered, holding an AR-15 kind of looking thing. Mm-hmm. And this state has won some cases and brought the magazine capacities down. And I think one area that we could win, and it should be done nationally, and I'm going to throw down on this in every way I can, is to remove assault weapons from the entire United States. I was born near Concord, Massachusetts. The shot heard around the world. Well, that gun was a black powder muzzleloader. And I believe you should be able to have a firearm. I own one. I'm not a gun nut in any way. When I went to summer camp, Jewish summer camp in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, or I went to Boy Scouts on Friday, and on Sundays we... Uh, Let's see, I joined the NRA in uh, 1958, so it's been a while, 60 years. You shot 22s. That's what you did. But the mentality was completely different. You hunted, you did that, and what you were taught, you know what the NRA's motto was in 1958? Safety first. 
a little different than we got today? No one. Let's go to Las Vegas. That happened because that piece of crap had the, uh, had the access to military-style weapons. And I'm, maybe I'm being rhetorical here, but to me, that's a fight we can win. If law firms got to every one of those victims and sued the gun manufacturers and all the gun stores that sold those to people for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I grew up with the Colts, that's who I went to school with, and Tommy Ruger at Salisbury School in Connecticut. And I understand the mentality behind it. I got a 22 right, as a gift so, from, gonna, from my bar mitzvah. Pardon? I got a 22 as a gift from my bar yeah, mitzvah. Yeah, right. Thank you. Bolt right, action, yeah, single yeah. bolt action. Okay, 22. and I produced, created, and published the first CD-ROM on firearms in the world. Okay, I'm being a little egotistical here, but that's what I did. All the gun manufacturers around in 1996. It's called multimedia guns. Oh, it is. So I understand guns. And as a gun owner and a gun enthusiast, there is no reason in the world for any human being in this country to own an assault weapon that can kill someone three-quarters of a mile away. I'm almost done. And does occasionally. So I think that's something we should do. And you know what? The gun companies might actually like it because if they all got confiscated and given to the military or wherever properly, then the people would go out and have to buy something different. Okay, so bottom line is I would love to see that ban happen with a simple logic. I'm not talking about suicide, and thank you for your patience with me. Pardon me, but this is really important that that kind of situation can never happen again. That's all. Thank you. So... So what do you two think about the, the likelihood, Adam, of, of um, a focus on AR-15s and those kind, that kind of guns as ha having any legs, so to speak, in this country? Well, it's, definitely, it's definitely a challenging issue. It's not where I think they, the, the, the movement should focus its energies. Uh, I appreciate your, uh, your opinion on, and point of view on that. Uh, you know, the truth is these AR-15s and military-style rifles are... Um, are used in these high-profile shootings with some frequency, um, but otherwise account for a very, very small fraction of gun deaths. Uh, and the shooter in the Pittsburgh um, um, uh, in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting had three handguns with him as well. And indeed, the data show that actually the majority of mass shootings are handguns. And uh, if you know much about tactics, as I think you do. Actually, in a small environment, these kinds of shootings, actually, a handgun's actually more effective. So uh, I'm not really sure that that's the reform. And it has, this, it has two other problems, which is that one, as you said, you go into a California gun store and it's got all these AR-15s. We've been regulating these things for 20 years, trying every way loose. The difficulty is it's actually hard to define what is a, an assault rifle as vis-a-vis -a, -vis a normal rifle. And California's passed three or four iterations of its ban on assault weapons, constantly rewriting it because the last one didn't work. And there's still, even with today's bans, you still have a lot of these firearms. So, and the other thing is, and then just one final thing that does make, this adds to the challenge here. You know, for years, gun control advocates have been saying, we don't want to take away your guns. And now you're going to say, hey, let's take away the most popular rifle in America, the one that has sold more than any other rifle 
the most popular gun in America. We're going to take it away. It may be a good idea. It may even be a good policy. But I think politically, it's a non-starter. It goes nowhere. And just one quick response, and I really respect your opinion. I used to be a hunter. Any real hunter hunts. It's not about hunting, though. I mean, that's not, it's America's gun culture is not a hunting culture. It's a recreational shooting culture. I agree. I agree, but to say there's no reason for them. So to say that, so just to respond, to say there's no reason for them, I agree. But there's millions of people who are buying them every year. They think there's a reason to spend a couple thousand dollars on one of these weapons. They think there's a reason. So you don't think there's a reason, and I agree. I, I don't see any great reason for it. But they think there's a reason, and that's the political difficulty in coming and overcoming. I was going to say self-esteem is a part of this. It's like it's the sense of personal power, not whether you're going to use it or anything, a sense of personal power. Angela. Actually, my question was similar. It's on the, sort of on the same topic, which is the assault rifles. Um, I was hoping, Adam, you could give us an update, because I know that after Newtown, they, the, every, they filed a lawsuit against the manufacturers that when I, I read the complaint when it was filed and I thought it, but when you read the history of the guns and how careful they are with them in the military and all the reasons why civilians really shouldn't have them, I thought it was brilliant. And I think the case is still alive, but I don't know where it stands and what you think it's odds Yeah, are. no, that's a great question. There is a lawsuit that's still going on um, uh, in the wake of Newtown on behalf of the victims against the gun manufacturers. I mean, it's gone through some twists and turns, but it points out actually a big problem, which is that uh, one of the things that's inhibiting the public health approach that really advanced the public health approach in some of the areas that we're talking about was litigation. Lawsuits by injured people who sued, got big judgments against these companies, and the companies said, hey, we got to reform so that we don't get these big judgments against us. That's not happening in the gun world. That's not happening in the gun industry, because Congress passed a law, uh, the Protection for Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, the PLACA, as it's known among uh, people in the area, um, and it provides very broad immunity for gun manufacturers and gun dealers when their firearms are used um, criminally uh, or uh, or negligently. Um, uh, there's very, very difficult to hold them liable. There's occasional some loopholes in the law and they're trying to exploit some of those loopholes, but the lawsuit, uh, I mean, honestly, the lawsuit's a very creative approach to the, to, to the statute uh, and I'd be surprised if it ultimately comes out successful. It might, um, but the, part of the problem is, is you have this law that was passed by the, the, get, got the, the, the NRA got in, enacted that really pro prohibits this kind of reform through litigation by making the companies sort of feel the costs of the, uh, the consequences of their uh, behavior. Uh, and so you just don't have that. Um, so I'm not confident that case is going to win, but, but if you want to think about uh, an area for reform, is repealing this law that provides this special immunity might be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Are you there? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Hi, Sorry. thank you. Um, I'm concerned that we have a false sense of security because we live in a state with relatively stricter gun, gun laws. And um, it's one of the California congressman, Steve Knights, uh, co-authored the Reciprocity for Concealed Carry 
uh, law, and I'm wondering if you could comment about how you see such a law were it to pass as a, a, a threat or not, and what a state which doesn't have, doesn't allow concealed carry would do if such a law were to pass, where we, people from other states could come in and, yeah, that's, yeah. It, that's it. Thank you. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, I don't know, I think this concealed carry reciprocity is a, a very complicated issue and I think it sounds, it's very confusing for many people. So different states have permit, different permitting statutes um, or levels of um, permitting to, the, to allow you to carry a gun, a concealed weapon in public places. Um, so some states like California have very strict standards. You have to pass a background check. You have to you know, fulfill many criteria. Um, and we also, so we just have these higher standards. There are other states that have permitless carry. So you don't have to get a permit to be able to carry a gun in public. And then there are states that sort of fall in between where permits are given very easily. Um, we have a lot of evidence that shows that states that don't have strict permitting standards have higher rates of violent crime. Um, this is an area that I think when we talk about gun violence research that there is a lot of junk science um, that gets quoted very often that says that carrying more guns in public make, makes us safer because we can stop mass shooters. We just, that is not something that the evidence really shows. Um, when people claim that they're relying on evidence that really is not even evidence, it's just junk science. So, um, but every available study that we have suggests that yes, in fact, these states that have less strict permitting standards, um, have higher rates of violent crime, have higher rates of the kind of violent crime that we would expect to see with gun use. So specifically see handgun homicides being elevated and not rifle homicides, which, which are not something that you would carry concealed. Um, so yeah, I think it, it concealed carry is, you know, it, it poses a real threat to people in states like California that have strong permitting standards. Um, you know, it passed the House this year. It didn't pass in the Senate. Um, so I think it shows the importance of, um, you know, our political process in, in how these laws get passed or not passed. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a real, it's, it's something to, it's very much a concern um, were it to pass, particularly for people in states like California. Do you need to add? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, um, you know, if you want to think, uh, well, I think it's right that there's not likely to see any significant um, gun violence prevention legislation passed by this Congress. Gun reform advocates could have a major victory in the next Congress if they can just prevent that national reciprocity bill from being adopted because uh, mm. it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes defense is the best offense. Um, the, there's the reciprocity, the idea they're selling is that, oh, the Virginia resident with the Virginia permit can come to Los Angeles to go to Disneyland and whatnot, and while they're, while they're wandering around, they can carry their permit the way California allows its people who have permits to carry guns. That's what they're selling it as. But the version that passed the House would allow anyone with a Virginia permit. And Virginia does not require you to be a resident to have a permit. In fact, you can just go online right now from the temple here in Pacific Palisades and get a permit online in Virginia. And then you can carry your gun in Los Angeles. And so the version that passed the House is not about tourists from Virginia coming to Los Angeles. It's about people in Los Angeles being able to get a permit online in Virginia and then carry their guns in Los Angeles. That would totally revamp and overturn Los Angeles's restrictive concealed carry policy. It's maybe a small thing to have a Virginia person come in and carry a gun. Yeah, maybe that's bad, but that's going to be a lot, worse, a lot less bad than having 
anyone in Los Angeles can get a permit. You want to know what the numbers, how that might affect Los Angeles? So in Los Angeles has 10 million, Los Angeles County has about 10 million people and less than 500 people with concealed carry permits, right? There's some retired police officers that are not counted there, but basically it's 500 civilians. Um, in states that have concealed carry, uh, basically allow anyone to get a conceal, concealed carry permit, your uh, rates are about 3 to 5% of the population gets a permit. So assuming California is going to be on the low end of that, 3%, you're now talking about from 500 people who have guns to 300,000 people who are lawfully allowed to carry guns on the streets. That's what you can kind of expect from national carry reciprocity, if you want some numbers. And, and just as a matter of a kind of an FYI, uh, Robert Bowers, the murderer of yesterday, has an active license to carry. It definitely doesn't... Mm. So, you come so here too. someone has a mic, yeah. and then over here. Is it true that you can actually build a, a gun off of a 3D printer? And if so, are there laws against that? Is there an effort to stop that from happening? Um, I can speak a little bit to this. So, um, my understanding is that code has been produced that would allow a downloadable gun to be printed that fires. Um, you know, there is probably some, I think there is some concern that these guns are probably not the most reliable, um, and they may also misfire and injure the, the user of the gun, um, as well as anyone that, you know, is on the other end of the gun. Um, I think, you know, there are attempts to regulate guns. So in California, my understanding, and Adam probably could answer this better than I could, but is that printed guns in California wouldn't meet our Unsafe Handgun Law Act? Would not. Um, so we have a law that requires guns to have certain safety standards, um, and I don't think that printed guns would meet those standards. Um, but, but, you know, this is a challenge and something that we are working on right now to figure out ways that we can regulate these guns. 21st century challenges. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, this has all been very informative and focused on regulatory and legal aspects of gun control. My concern, and I don't know whether this panel or any of us really can do anything about it, but uh, we all grew up, most of us as I look around the audience, grew up in the same environment that Rabbi spoke about where you know, having a 22 or going to camp and practicing with a, a pellet gun was, was very common. Um, but the culture and the environment was so much different then. And my concern is how are we going to, what's going to take place to change the current mentality and uh, dialogue or arguing that's going on in our society uh, being fueled by, you know, obviously very, very, very diverse perspectives on what's right and what's wrong, what's admittable, what's permissible, and what's not permissible, etc. Mm. You've got really high hopes for this panel. But it's also, it is something to recognize that, I mean, when we think about and the frustrations that we have in the space of gun violence prevention, I mean, we should also recognize that, look, Congress can't get anything done right now. American politics is really broken in a fundamental way, and we can't find common ground on anything. And the only laws that, significant laws that Congress can pass 
or like the laws like the tax reform, laws that are just forced through because there's a political party that has the majority and can get that law passed. Um, you're not really seeing uh, the kind of compromise and, and politics. And, and I certainly don't think we're going to solve those cultural issues by focusing on gun violence prevention, right? That's not the area that we're going to find our common ground and build on, I think. That's going to be one of the areas that ultimately maybe we can solve, but right now that's got to be as divisive as any issue right now. Yeah, I think, again, it's, I mean, you sort of all, in a sense, are on the same page, regardless of what our political party might be, in recognizing the challenge of finding common cause. That, and perhaps that is one of our biggest challenges, a challenge for religious institutions which rely on their foundations of ethics and values across the spectrum to, uh, to help us come together and rediscover those values that we do have in common. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's maybe it's the, the Internet's greatest challenge. It's what the Internet that was first touted as you know, sort of the ultimate democratization of information is like many other, like fire. I was saying earlier, the Internet to me is like fire. You know, fire is not good or evil. Fire is fire. And you either use it to burn things down or you use it to create heat and warmth and cook food and provide comfort and in, in times of you know, trouble and, and hunger. And the Internet's like that. And we have to, as a society, re- recognize the challenges that the inter- the negative challenges that the Internet has has created, and including stoking the the fires of this Robert Bowers of yesterday of going online and believing certain things and then acting on his belief um, and figuring out how, as a society, we can respect each other's integrity and at the same time uh, regulate the kind of information that is so easily available now that it, it has empowered the fringes of society to believe that they're stronger than they are, that there's more of them than they are, and therefore to act out in ways that are destructive across the board, on both on the right and the left, frankly. Yeah, uh, wherever there is. Okay. Uh, I, I think somehow I've never heard th- this talk about uh, how do you prevent criminals from having guns? That's the tools of their trade. The reason a lot of people have guns for self-protection is they fear criminals. Until you get the guns out of the hands of those people, uh, what are good people allowed to do? I mean, uh, sooner or later there's going to be another earthquake, a major earthquake in this area. The veneer of civilizations are going to break down. They're going to be looters going from house to house. Uh, I think the reason people have guns is because they want to protect themselves from the people, the bad people, not the good people. I don't fear a suicide. I, don't, I fear a criminal. Any reactions, anybody? Yeah, I, I was going to say a couple of things. So one is, I think broadly we do know that... Um, Many people believe that they own guns for protection, and I don't want to say that no one ever uses a gun to protect themselves, but we actually see that having a gun in the home creates risk. Um, It increases the risk of homicide, suicide, unintentional shootings, regardless of other factors that you might think of as protective. Um, And we also see that defensive gun use is 
incredibly rare. So it's very unlikely that you would use a gun, um, or that many people would use a gun to defend themselves. And so there was actually a study that basically said that if someone comes into your home um, and is confronting you, that your chances of survival and, and preventing injury are about the same if you use a gun to defend yourself versus if you just run away from the scene. Um, so I think sometimes we, over, we overestimate the, the effect, the protective effect of guns. I think some people think that it's going to be this sort of beacon of protection, and we really just don't see that pan out um, among gun owners. The other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, so you say that any controls we um, place or any gun safety laws we pass, criminals will just have guns. I think that that is... Also, you know, that we can regulate guns, um, and we know that we can prevent criminals from accessing guns, so to speak. Um, and even illegal markets, when we regulate the legal market, we know that we disrupt illegal markets. So we increase the price of guns in illegal markets, and we make it harder. We shrink the size of illegal markets by passing really strong gun safety laws. So I think the idea that criminals are always just going to be able to get guns is also... I think it's, you know, it's obviously something that we hear a lot and it's talked about a lot, but I don't really know that that pans out again in the data that, you know, we see that if we pass really strong gun safety laws, we can prevent at-risk people from accessing guns. We've done it in the past, and if we continue to pass these laws, we can have progress. Can I just add one thing to that? Uh, in, in New York City, there, there was a lot of homicides years back, and it, it, it looked like Chicago looks like now. And uh, Mayor Giuliani had his stop and frisk law, and it allowed the police to stop people who looked like they were up to no good. And it, re it reduced the amount of a homicide greatly. And then the ACLU stepped in and said, this is racial profiling, and you can't do it. And now the, so the, the, there is evidence that if you have strong laws that will take the guns out of hands of criminals, it will work, but you have to do that. Well, I would, I mean, I would argue that stop and frisk was not an effective policy. We actually don't really see that in the data that it was, in, and it was incredibly damaging to communities of color um, and very stigmatizing. Um, what we have seen that's worked really well in New York are these evidence-based violence prevention initiatives, and actually stop and frisk ended a few years ago in New York, and these evidence-based violence prevention programs, so things like Cure Violence, Ceasefire that you may have heard of, have persisted in New York, and we've seen declines that are, in fact, even larger than we saw when Stop and Frisk was in, in effect. So this is a program that's really effective and doesn't stigmatize people of color in the way that, that a Stop and Frisk policy does. So this is about Stop and Frisk, though. I mean, uh, I think that Stop and Frisk is, is an example of an innovative policy that I think was misapplied and uh, targeted uh, and was used uh, for racial profiling, which was a mistake. Um, but I think the idea is if you want to get at gun violence, you need these innovative approaches. And whether you think that was a good one or not a good one, uh, you need, like, ceasefire and these right. things. But you've got to think outside the box because I think a lot of people start with sort of what you began your comment with, which is some pe people need guns. No one's talking about getting rid of all the guns. Right? That's not an issue on the table today. No one's seriously talking about I mean, even we talked about maybe we seriously talked about banning assault weapons, but no one's really talking about 
saying, okay, people and the civilians cannot own guns. What you're talking about is putting things in place to try to do more to keep guns out of the hands of the most violent people. Um, and so I think it's important to understand the terms of the debate. No one's right. talking about getting rid of all the guns. We've got 400 million guns. If you want to talk about getting rid of all the guns, smack me across the head because that's not happening anytime soon. Right. Um, let's focus on what we can do, which is living in a world with 400 million guns, like yeah. it or not. So we're going to have a, a couple more questions, and then Rabbi Bernstein's going to lead us in uh, sort of a closing, and then we're, we have uh, an opportunity for people afterwards to, to gather outside. There's some food and some things, and, and to continue the conversation, just so you know where we're going. Yeah, there's a call. I'll get back to you. Yeah. If you're going to answer this at the end, then just wait till the end. But I'd like to know if you guys have a call for action for all the people in the room that isn't the word go vote. A different call for action that we can do to see things move in a direction that I think we're all interested in seeing things move. Sure. Um, I think voting is really important. I don't want to, I know that you want something more than that, but it is really important. Um, the other thing is, I think being engaged and mobilized about this issue is really important. So, one thing that the NRA has done really well is created a base of people that show up at state houses when something is coming up to vote and they call their senators and their congressmen and their representatives. Um, we don't have the same, we, or we haven't, I should say, had the same kind of activism um, in the, on the gun safety side. Um, I think the Parkland kids seem to be changing that. They're very loud and very vocal about what they believe. But, you know, we see that about 20% of people who, um, who want less restriction on guns have called their congressperson or other representative within the past year. And less than 10% of people who want more gun safety laws have done the same. So I think being really knowledgeable about the kinds of laws that are coming up for votes, the kinds of laws that are being considered, and making your voice heard, not just at the ballot box, but every day, um, is really important. And I think there are great, you know, I would say Giffords has a great website that you can sort of, you can subscribe to emails, you can see what's going on um, in the gun violence prevention movement and be informed and aware of what's happening. Um, I think that's a really great way that everyone can be engaged and it really, it seems like it's a lot of effort and it's very scary. I think the first time that you call your congressperson, um, but it, it really can make a difference. Congresspeople have said that they vote based on what kind of calls they get. And when they get 100 calls saying that we should pass um, a really dangerous gun law and they don't get many calls that say that we shouldn't pass a dangerous law, that affects the way that they vote and the way that they pass laws. Yeah, I mean, I think just follow the NRA's script. Right? They, they know how to political mobilize, how to mobilize, and you've got to do the same thing. It's really it's about that mobilization. And it's not just about voting. You know what it really should be for this congregation? Giving. Money. This is the most wealthy community in America. You know, what's gonna, it's, you know what the reform effort needs? Is your money. That's what your relative advantage is, right? That's how the economy works, right? Your division of labor, everyone has their relative advantages. You know what your relative advantage is? Money. Give money to the organizations. Give money to the candidates who stand for the issues that you care about. You've got to do this, all this mobilization to, to be working the phones. You want to be active. Often I hear them in these situations, well, what's the call to action? You're right. This is the most important part of the whole thing. There's a clear call to action. There's a lot of things you can do. It's get involved, volunteer for one of these organizations, uh, organize little community meetings, lobby your local officials, uh, raise money. If you, don't, if you don't have enough money to give, raise money to work your networks to get money. That's how you change things in politics is you get involved and you mobilize. And that's how gun control is going to work 
work. It's going to win one day only if that happens, if you have that mobilization. That's what the NRA's done, and they've had great success for it. Just follow their lead. Thank you. We have a, we have a last uh, question over here. Quick question for um, now. Is there any movement on uh, introducing smart technology into um, mandatory gun manufacture, such as we have our thumbprint for our iPhones and things of that sort? At least it goes to some direction. Uh, a password to use the gun, a password, right. essentially. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they'll be dead before I'll get my password <laughs> in. Uh, but but no, the, 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 the point is that um, guns are being uh, found in the uh, other people who have them, criminals, right. etc. Can or is the gun lobby just such that they're not going to tolerate uh, smart smart guns? So my understanding is New Jersey passed a law that said that once a smart gun was created that could be sold in the market, that every gun sold in the state within a certain period of time would have to be a smart gun. What that basically did was it created no incentive for gun manufacturers to design a gun that could be a smart gun because they didn't want um, to, be, to come into con conflict with the NRA. Um, what Giffords is doing and what I think is a really smart and innovative approach is instead of saying that we have to require guns to be smart guns, we're sort of incentivizing the technology. So thinking about ways that we could have you know, a tax rebate when, with the purchase of a smart gun so, um, or a personalized weapons. I think there are efforts um, to, to bring those guns into market that you know, people are working on this issue. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I don't know that there's any pending legislation at the time, maybe in New Jersey in the next couple of cycles. And it's worth thinking about those kinds of that kind of legislation. I mean, I mean, you still have the 400 million problem, <laughs> which is you've got 400 million guns that don't have the fingerprint thing. And so, you know, whether that's going to have an effect, you know, 50 years down the line when you can try to reform the gun stock, maybe that's, but that's kind of a real long horizon kind of reform. Um, well, given not many people have an Apple IV anymore. Right. An iPhone 4. So. Right, but you keep your gun. <clears throat> you know, your gun doesn't go out of date in 10, ten years. Yes. I, I have one other um, innovative suggestion about guns, which is that it occurs to me that in some places there are laws that hold bartenders responsible if they give drinks to people who they can see are drunk, who then go out and kill somebody or hurt somebody with their car. And it occurs to me every time there's a, a, a teenager who grabs his father's gun and walks into some school and shoots somebody, I always see the parents going, I, I, you know, we had no idea that was going to happen, and that maybe we should pass laws that hold parents responsible for what their minors do with their guns that would make them much more responsible about locking them up and preventing them from falling into the hands of their own kids if, in fact... They become accessories to whatever crimes their kids committed legally by shooting a gun. Just a thought. We, we do have sim somewhat similar laws. They're Good, called uh, child access prevention laws, and they require that gun in some states they require that guns be stored safely so that if a child accesses or would be able to access a gun, then the parent can be held responsible for that. Love that. Yeah. Rabbi Bernstein. And again, since I had the privilege of sitting here, I want to thank Adam personally and, and Kelly for giving up your time, coming here and, and spending the afternoon with us. 
schlepping down from San Francisco and uh, and touching on something that you know is inevitably uh, difficult and challenging and in many ways gut wrenching and particularly particularly this weekend. So really appreciate you being here. Thank you.